A typhoon flypast has taken place over Loch Ness to mark the spot where a Wellington bomber ditched nearly 80 years ago. One crew member was killed in the incident. Now a campaign's underway to ensure the aircraft's story is never forgotten. Here's Nicola McCallie. When the engine cut out, I realised that there was no possibility of getting back to base. Uh, the aircraft was losing height. Memories of how a giant of military aviation met a watery end on New Year's Eve 1939. Wellington bomber pilot David Marwood Elton was forced to ditch his aircraft on Loch Ness almost eight decades ago after a training exercise ended in tragedy. One crewman, Sergeant John Fensom, died after bailing out. We were flying at 8,000 feet and the weather conditions were snow squalls. As luck would have it, spotted Loch Ness through a break in the clouds. The wreckage lay undisturbed for nearly 50 years before it was discovered by chance by American Nessie hunters in 1976 and it was raised to the surface a decade later. Adrian Shine helped survey the spot at the time. Today he returned with a marker. You could see the engines, you could see the gun turrets, uh, as well as the, the damage that had happened to it. And so it was it's quite fascinating. And it's for, nearly 40 years ago for me. A commemoration campaign's underway to mark 80 years since the Wellington ditched. Today an airborne tribute came in the form of a typhoon flypath from the base the World War II bomber belonged to. Aria Flossimouse. A lay-by looks over the spot, its plaque tended by former headmaster Ian Benzie, whose pupils were captivated by the story. They were given the responsibility of finding out from the actual people, the pilot, his wife, the uh, uh, Robin Holmes and the, the uh, Loch Ness Wellington Association. The Wellington bomber, nicknamed R for Robert, now resides in the Brooklands Museum in Surrey and a film's being made to recount the tale of when this monster landed in Loch Ness. If it hadn't been for interest in, in Nessie and people doing a Nessie hunt, um, it would have probably never been found. Like many aircraft that crashed during the war uh, have long, long since forgotten, this one lives on. Nearly 80 years after she ditched here on a dark winter's night, the story of the Wellington bomber continues to live on. And those involved in this project say they're determined that this legend of Loch Ness will be marked for many years to come. Nicola McCallie, STV News. All right, and welcome to BMTV uh, video podcasts and radio. I'm Tim Morris, and today we're going to be talking about Arthur Robert, our uh, prize Wellington. If you visit the museum and you go into the aircraft factory, and it is the main thing that you'll see when you get in there. A uh, very important aircraft. And we're going to be talking with three people today. Uh, we've got Jack Waterfall, we've got Rachel Kellett, and we've got Vic Atwood. And they're all from the Loch Ness Wellington 2020 project. But we're going to begin the story uh, with Arthur Robert, which is the only surviving Wellington that actually saw active service and it's the only surviving one that was built at Brookings itself. So I'm going to ask Rachel what her connection is with the Wellington and talk a little bit about of the main battle that it was involved in which was the Battle of Heligoland Bight. So over to Rachel for a little history lesson. 
Right, well, thank you very much. Um, the, the story actually begins just before the Second World War. I, I, I'm here because uh, my, I'm, I'm the niece of Richard Kellett, um, who was the squadron leader uh, for the, the, the Battle of Heligoland Blight. And he was chosen as a squadron leader because of the, uh, just before the Battle of Heligoland Blight, he, he led something called the long distance flight from Ishmalia in Egypt to Darwin, Australia. Um, not flying Wellingtons, but flying Wellesleys, also, also built by Vickers. Um, on November the 8th, 1938, the RAF launched an attempt on the Soviet Union's non-stop long-distance long record of 60, of 6,000 miles. And he successfully, uh, with the crew, with the formation again, uh, with, with, with three aircraft, uh, two successfully landed and beat the record. So for that reason, he was um, promoted really and led uh, as a squadron leader, uh, the Battle of Heligoland Blight, which was the first air battle of the, of, the, of the Second World War. It was a strange battle um, uh, because they were under very, very strict instructions. Um, when the war cabinet were anxious to obtain the sinking of German ships, but our objective was simple, but silly, according to Richard. Um, no civilian may be killed or injured and only naval ships could be attacked at sea. We were virtually forbidden to drop our bombs on land. Um, and if a, ma a man transgressed from this ruling, punishment was quite severe. Um, they, they set off um, 24 Wellingtons um, in, uh, in four battle flights from Mildenhall, um, led by Wing Commander Kellett, my uncle Richard. Um, uh, uh, they approached Heligoland from the north, turned south, saw warships at anchor, but faced considerable flak both from the batteries on the islands and the warships. The Wellingtons released their bombs and Hitz claimed one cruiser and two trawlers and one flank battery was damaged. Um, however, some uh, four Messerschmitts were, were scrambled and uh, the Luftwaffe successfully were fought off by some uh, by gun, uh, turret gunners. And according to Richard, they escaped in a cloud before eight following Messerschmitts could intercept. Um, the, the same happened, I think, um, in Wilhelmshaven the, the following day. Um, whether it was a successful battle is, um, I, I think the best thing to say about it, en enormous lessons were learned and this was a daylight flight. Um, and I, there were no daylight flight uh, uh, battles after this. Uh, we were kind of sitting targets. Um, uh, Tim ha Harris, um, who's the son of Paul Harris, who was one of the uh, leaders of, of, uh, of, of this battle, um, spoke about it uh, very well. Um, is that, is that sufficient to know about Heligoland or would you like to know more? Um, yeah, I mean, what happened after the raid? Did they all survive the raid? Did they all come back in one piece or, right. or what happened? I think the Fly Past magazine said, uh, this action engineered in Bomber Command a false sense of optimism um, since the self-defending bomber theory now appeared to have been proved. 
So uh, Wilhelmshaven took place the following day. Um, and there were many more fatalities. Out of 22 planes, 12 were shot down. And uh, this is a quote from Richard. Um, it was a complete farce, he said. We had no self-sealing tanks. That was another point that Paul Harris made. made. And silly First World War chaffer guns, hopeless against the heavy flak that we received. The good thing is that we got rid of the, the CNC. Now, I don't have the statistics. I think Jack might have of those yeah, think, that um, survived and those that didn't. If we actually um, look at the sequence of the Battle of Heligoland, we had 24 Wellingtons taken off from three airfields in East Anglia. Um, Squadron 149 from Milden Hall, Squadron 9 from Honington, and Squadron 37 from Feltwell. Um, two of the um, Milden Hall flight had to return to base because one had developed engine trouble early and another one escorted him back. And then the, rep, the 22 went in to um, Heligoland Bight. Um, I don't think the RAF were aware that the Germans had got fairly advanced um, freer radar on the island of uh, Bangaruga, um, but they had. And when they got to the point where they were, they, they actually flew out to Bangaruga and then headed south towards um, Wilhelmshaven, the actual operator on um, Bangaruga reported to the base at Yeva and they didn't believe him. They said, you know, you must be plotting seagulls on your street screens. You know, the Tommies wouldn't come on a day like this because it was just broad daylight. But there they were. And of course, the carnage that ensued, those, I, I think there must have been at least 10 of that uh, formation shot down into the sea within 30 minutes. We then had two aircraft damaged, and as mentioned earlier, no self-sealing fuel tanks, and um, they had to ditch on the way, they didn't make it back to England and they both ditched about, one ditched about 50 miles off Grimsby, the other 50 miles off Cromer. And Tim Harris told me the tale of his father, who was second in command on that raid, um, escorting his friend Bryden, who was in one of the wounded um, Wellingtons, who had to ditch 50 miles off Cromer, and he could see that the actual fuel streaming down the, the wings, and so Bryden came to, you know, his engines stopped, he glided down, and Paul Harris followed him down to make sure that he'd ditch safely, which he had, and
Also, he assumed that his dinghy had been damaged. So he attempted to deploy his own dinghy in flight, which it wasn't designed to do, you know. And um, it became tangled around his tailplane. And uh, he then had a very shaky um, uh, ride back to land and managed to touch down at Coltishaw. Um, the, um, the other one that ditched, um, that was, the pilot was rather clever on that one because he ditched in sight of a trawler because he knew that North Sea in the coldest winter for more than three decades, he'd got 15 minutes to survive if he landed in the water as, as a human being. And so he obviously said, well, we've got to land within 15 minutes of this trawler. And in that case, the whole crew um, got rescued by the trawler and taken back to hospital in Grimsby. Um, we had one death, the rear gunner was lost, Walter Lilly. Um, and also, um, Ronnie Driver, um, Minnie Driver's father, was 18 years old. And the more I read about his circumstances was that everybody, everybody else in the aircraft was badly injured. And that was through his, through his um, bravery and you know, his, his, his ability you know, to be mobile that he managed to get the, the dinghy upside and get the, the surviving crew into that dinghy and they survived. Um, you know, and, and you know, what we're actually seeing in our research and in all these little details that we find more and more of, you know, we, we, do, we are in touch with the real human cost of, um, of this activity. And in the case of Ronnie Driver, 18, very traumatized, um, obviously. And he actually went into a, a psychiatric unit in Matlock first. And then ironically, once he managed to get out of there, he was put into RAF Littleport. And RAF Littleport was the forerunner hospital before the RAF Hospital Ely. So, you know, we can, we can see those same buildings in these parts today. And he managed to actually recover a year after that battle. And he was, you know, he then managed to, you know, come back and he did survive the war and rose to high, you know, quite high rank in the RAF over time. Uh, one thing we didn't, or I didn't make clear why we're mentioning Paul Harris is it was Paul Harris who was flying Arthur Robert in both of those battles, Heligoland and Wilhelmshaven. And he came back, he, 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 he Tim calls it the luck of the Harrises because he survived the whole war with many other flights. But that's, that was the aircraft that Paul Harris was, uh, was, was, was pilot of. 
in both of those battles. So Arthur and Robert was fighting in both of those battles. Lovely, thank you. And did you get a chance to speak to your uncle Richard in person about the battle at all? Yes, I did. Um, I, I only met Richard really at the end of his life. Um, he was he was one of five uh, children, uh, one of them my father, who I never knew. So coming to know Richard was was very beautiful um, for me, and he was he you know he was obviously like the father that I'd never met. Um, and he'd had a very, very colorful life. He, he had he'd done this long distance flight from Ishmaelia in Egypt, as I said, to Darwin, where I recently visited and saw uh, a, a demonstration of that. Um, he was involved in Heligoland. He was taken prisoner and uh, uh, landed up in, in Stalagluf and was um, senior British officer there for the various escapes that took place. Okay. Um, yeah, very colourful and, and, and a very interesting and self-deprecating man. Oh, thank you. Um, moving back to Arthur Robert. Uh, now, I know it took part in a few other uh, missions before the incident on Hogmanay in December 1940. I don't know if we can move to Vic. Uh, perhaps you could tell us uh, what happened. Well, I'm not quite sure. I've, been, I've come into this because Tim Harris has already been mentioned, whose father's aircraft it was. Um, I've known Tim for about 40 years. I'm actually a civil aviation person from Heathrow and Gatwick originally, although I now live in Inverness. In fact, I know Brooklyn's and some of the exhibits you've got there quite well. But when this came up about, it, about the remembrance of Arthur Robert in the Inverness area, um, because Tim knew I was here, um, he co-opted me, as it were, um, onto on, on the group um, for, my, for my local knowledge of the Inverness area. Um, but I, I'd met him many times and I'd seen it, uh, I'd seen Arthur Robert at Brooklands and I was fully aware of the, of the background story to it. But I'm, I was here in Inverness and more involved in what's going on currently rather than the historical side of it. If you like, I can read you the story of, or I can tell you the story of what happened that New Year's Eve, would that be useful? Um, N2980, which is Arthur Robert, was transferred to training duties at Lossiemouth. On New Year's Eve in 1940, pilot squadron leader Marwood Elton and pilot officer Slater took off in the late afternoon with a crew of six, including uh, 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 some trainee uh, navigators. After taking off from Lossiemouth, the snowstorm increased and one of, the, one of the Wimpies, which is another name for the Wellingtons, two engines failed. Flying Arthur Robert became increasingly challenging. Losing height, Marlwood Elton ordered the crew, including the trainee navigators, to, to, to bail out. And five of the crew bailed out successfully, but the rear gunner, Sergeant Fensom's parachute failed to open and he died, sadly. All the others landed safely. Um, so with just the squadron leader and the co-pilot on board, uh, 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 Marlwood Elton and his co-pilot Slater fought to keep her aloft. Seeing a large stretch of water, they skillfully brought the wimpy down and ditched in the ice-cold lock. The two pilots were able to get out on the wing where they launched their inflatable rubber dinghy and paddled ashore. They landed right next to the A82 road, where a, where a truck gave them a lift to nearby Inverness, just in time, it turned out, 
for both men to join the New Year's Eve celebrations. Meanwhile, Arthur Roberts sank 230 feet into the bottom of Loch Ness. And that's where it stayed for some 40 odd years. Uh, what happened then in the early 80s? Perhaps well, Jack I can say something about the, the, the dishing, if I may, Tim. Uh, the, yeah. early, the early Wellingtons, um, you could not feather the propellers. So when you had an engine failure, it became an almighty drag on, on, on the aircraft. Um, they were, that's why they were unable to maintain altitude. If they'd had a more modern aircraft or even a later model of the Wellington, uh, where you could feather the props, they would have probably barely got back to loss enough. Yeah. And on that point, um, one thing I do f I find fascinating is that the men who were flying the Wellington loved the Wellington and believed, and I guess it was true, it, at the time it was leading edge technology. But the point Vic has just made, the Pegasus 1A engine um, was, uh, you know, early 1930s technology. And therefore, you know, that was already out of date, but there was nothing better at the time. And, um, and then Tim made the point the other day, he said, uh, you know, at that time, the Wellington was the only thing we had, you know, to defend our country. You know, it was the best thing. So, and then obviously following on from that, the, the rate of technological change was very fast. Yeah, absolutely. So it lay at the bottom of the lock uh, for 40 or 41 years, I think it was. And yeah. so what led to the discovery of it there? Well, if I may, I'll, I'll just take over the story because I've been trying to deal with the Americans um, on the early part of this thing, which has proved to be quite um, challenging over many months. Um, there was a character called um, Robert Rhines from Boston. He was a patent lawyer and quite wealthy. And I think his early, he, he was actually a lock, he was a Nessie fanatic. He wanted to find Nessie. And uh, he came over more than once. And in 1976, he brought over a young sonar expert called Marty Klein. And Marty Klein and his team were doing a geological survey with their sonar. And um, it, in the 1976 visit, it wasn't until they got back to America and analyzed their traces that they realized that they'd picked up this Wellington. And there is some confusion whether they thought that was a Wellington, because there are reports that some thought it was a Catalina. Anyway, they came back in 78 and got an improved image. And indeed, it was um, a Wellington. And, and the problem was, of course, in 1978, um, it was then sort of common knowledge where it was. So the time... Uh, Robin Holmes arrived on the scene in the early 80s, there was a fair bit of vandalism that had gone on, you know, trawlers with grappling hooks and all sorts had vandalized the old Wellington. And his big worry was that, you know, we've, we've, we've got to get on and recover this Wellington because there's, you know, there's going to be nothing left. And um, 
And so there are various dives. So there is quite a lot of un underwater footage, which we have in our possession now of those early dives in 81. And then obviously Robin managed to get the Loch Ness Wellington Association together, which, uh, which its membership included Richard Kellett and Paul Harris. And they did the lifting in, um, in, in September 1985. And that wasn't easy either, because, um, you know, that, you know that, that wasn't straightforward. They had a few little disasters, but they did manage to land it on the 21st of September 1985. And I think there was quite a large team of enthusiasts from Brooklands, which were probably related to British Aerospace, who were there, you know, looking through that wreckage and, um, and studying the parts. And obviously, being from British Aerospace, were probably very familiar with those parts. Um, and it was, the wreckage was washed down, loaded onto articulated lorries and driven up 560 miles down to Weybridge, where it, where it is now. It couldn't be a better place for it, where it came from initially, yeah. of course. Um, it was a massive undertaking to restore the aircraft, uh, probably for the next 10 years or so, uh, involving around 70 different companies were involved in the restoration, um, but largely by engineering apprentices and volunteers uh, did the majority of the work on it. So it's absolutely fantastic effort to get it into the condition that we do see it today. But uh, let's go back briefly to um, Heligoland again. Now, as, as a result, result of that, I believe the Heligoland 39 project was set up. And I think Jack has some knowledge of that. Perhaps you can tell us what that was about. Well, I mentioned one thing leading to another. Um, my cousin, did a fairly in-depth um, bit of research relating to our family because we had lost an uncle in a Wellington in July 1940, three days before the Battle of Britain started. Um, and our family is a little bit, well, I wouldn't say peculiar, but different in as much as we were smallholders on a farm six miles from our air felt well. My uncle was born in 1918. Um, so he was, at the, you know, at the beginning of the war, he was 20 odd and quite a bright boy, but obviously had been born into the, the Great Depression. He was searching for a better life. And, uh, he used to spend time in Feltwell at weekends playing football with the RAF men there. And he was then, uh, he enlisted in the RAF in January 1939. And he flew his first mission in January 1940. And he was dead July 1940. And I think that's a common sort of scenario for many families. But the difference with our family was, there we were, 
living, still living and farming six miles from Felwell. So me being born in 1949, I was born into a community which remembered my uncle. You know, you'd see somebody in the village and say, well, I used to play football with him, you know. Whereas I think that's quite uncommon because most airmen would have been hundreds of miles from their home and wouldn't have had that emotional connections. So you take me and my cousin, so we were fed with these stories from many people from our community. Our grandfather was like many old people, that they just didn't want to talk about the war. So we didn't have an accurate picture of what happened. But anyway, to cut a long story short, we found the wreckage in um, a forest near Yeva, and we commemorated that loss with the, with the erection of a memorial by the commander of our Yeva in 2016. And this is where the one thing leads to another. On the, when we were leaving Yeva Airfield, um, I was given a poster, a copy of a, a poster which all these Wellingtons were being shot into the sea. And that was a German propaganda painting depicting the Battle of Heligoland Bight. And me and my partners in the, in the early project um, had actually managed to find all the families of the other four aircrew that were in my uncle's Wellington. And I said to them, I said, well, when we got back and we, we looked a bit more into the Battle of Heligoland Bight, and we realized there was 127 families involved, they were a little bit aghast when I suggested we go in a worldwide search for 157 families. But they were persuaded eventually to do that and the Heligoland um, 39 project, we actually managed to celebrate the beginning of the 80th anniversary year at Ely Cathedral and the actual 80th anniversary of the battle at the RF Memorial at um, Runnymede, followed by excellent afternoon tea and cake at Brooklands. Fantastic. Um, so you managed to track down how many of these uh, relatives? Rachel will correct me. I think in Ely we had, because did you come to Ely yet, Rachel? Did you manage to come to Ely? Yes, I did, of course yeah. I did. Um, I, I think we, we had a, over, we had a, a, over 82 relatives, you know, and obviously among them there were, well, that is another reality of this business. Obviously, um, where you had families where their young airmen had survived, those families were big, but you had a lot of families who were no longer existent because their, their line had been destroyed and, you know, way back in 39. But we did manage on both occasions to get, what, 80-odd relatives to those events. And, um, and I think the icing on the cake was the actual meeting at Brooklands because we took over the Vicar suite there and 
the atmosphere on the eight, well, it's a year ago tomorrow, isn't it? That we were at Brooklands. Yes. Yeah, a year ago tomorrow. But the the atmosphere there was just electric. You know. Could I could I just interject there and and say my grateful thanks to Jack for 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 doing this because through through this I met Tim Harris, the son of Paul Harris, and this is what I found. He said this was his um, speech. Kellett arrived just in time. One of the RAF's most brilliant pilots. He led the world's long distance uh, record leading three Wellesleys from Egypt to Australia. He's one of a small handful of young senior officers in the group capable of leading formation. He led brilliantly on the Venomshaven raid and we survived because of him. So imagine, you know, how lovely, how wonderful that is for me to hear. Richard would never say anything like that. You no. know, he was a kind of self-deprecating man. So to hear from Paul, uh, the, the words of his father about Richard were very, very touching. Um, yeah. So that was a great highlight for me. Well, yeah, and also um, another reality of their situation, they actually knew what they were doing, you know, Richard and Paul, because, um, you know, they'd, they'd flown since the mid-30s, hadn't they? They knew what they were doing, and they knew the Wellington technology, but their big problem was their commanders were of the World War I generation and hadn't got a clue, you know. So it was a, a difficult uh, sort of um, management problem there early in Bomber Command, and everybody had to learn very quickly. That's true. Um, so you're talking about how one thing led to another, and we had the Heligoland 39 project, which I guess culminated really in December 2019 with the events you've been talking about. So how did that lead on to the, the next project, the Loch Ness Wellington 2020? Well, Tim Harris actually visited me and Evie several times, you know, in the lead up to all this. I think he first came over in October 2018. And um, Tim, by profession, is a pig breeder. And here in Ely, we happen to have a world-famous pork butcher who makes excellent sausages. And so me and Tim had a common interest in uh, consuming the bangers of mash together. And that began <laughs> a relationship. And... Uh, he was then filling me in on Paul Harris's link with Arthur Robert. And I guess, you know, we, we realized that this 80th anniversary of the ditching was, you know, in the pipeline. And we said, should we do something about this, you know, just to finish off. And therefore, I think we've got to credit Tim with actually sort of sparking this little idea off and uh, and then if you move to Inverness Vic has served a really good purpose in connecting the project with all sorts of people all sorts of useful people up in Inverness and um, but I think we've we're finding the in the enthusiasm for all this up in Inverness sort of tremendous really that that for me that is becoming 
the reward. We had this lovely um, uh, Scottish TV presentation, um, and that happened on the when did when did we fly the typhoon, Vic? That was the twenty eighth of October, wasn't it? Yeah, I know it was towards the end of October. Yeah, twenty eighth of October. Um, nine squadron had organised for a, a typhoon Eurofighter to do a fly past, you know, and Scottish TV covered it and. Nicola McAlley, who was the presenter on that program, put the emphasis on Arthur Robert being a Loch Ness legend. And I think that is true, really. But I just add the kind of connection with Vic, who, um, because of COVID, and we are unable to go up there ourselves and to travel, Vic has been invaluable with many trips to the Loch Ness uh, or the Wellington lay-by, as we, as we like to call it, and yeah. arranging for a, a, a service, a pre-recorded yeah. service in Inverness Cathedral, um, and, and finding all the local people who were involved, including um, uh, the, the local school teacher, Ian Benzie, whose children were involved in the 1985 uh, salvage yeah. by creating a, a play. So uh, Vic, who, who is kind of linked to, to us through through Tim Harris, they, they both uh, were an animal cargo. I think, is that right in saying? Well, yeah. If you were if part of the International yeah. Committee that devised procedures. I, I, was, I, was, I was an airline, I was British, Cal British Caledonian Airways, in fact, and its predecessor companies for over 30 years. Um, but we were experts on livestock carriage, amongst other things. And, and Tim, in fact, was one of our customers. Um, but the other, the other link that I had with Tim, that his vet, was also our company vet, so we had a we had a um, a link a link on that side. But if I can say a bit more about Tim, he actually farmed near near Red Hill Aerodrome, literally at the end of the runway at Red Hill Aerodrome. Um, that's where the family farm was, um, where they used to breed. Unfortunately, it was dissected by the M23 when it was built. Uh, the farm was, and and oh. Tim went in instead of breeding himself, he became an expert at sourcing known breeds for various other breeders around the world and used to ship these pedigree pigs um, all over the place. Um, but Tim actually moved to Canada a few years ago um, and he's now, he's now based in, near Montreal, uh, mainly because of e EU regulations killed his business. So, um, but that's my, that's my sort of input. The other thing I would say about me locally I'm actually also, until recently, I was secretary of the Highland Branch, the Royal, Royal Aeronautical Society. So I've got my inns at Lossie Mouth and places like that. Yeah, that could be very useful, I think. Um, I mean, you mentioned Scottish TV film, this, The Typhoon, which must have been quite something to see. Um, what's happened to that film? Are there any future plans to include it in anything else? Well, we've, well, we've got, I think we've got lots of good footage of that typhoon and that will come in because we want to because squadron nine the, the significance of squadron nine or sorry i should say nine squadron to be correct in raf uh, bingo, um they are the only squadron of the three that uh, went to heligoland that is still operational you know they're a bomber squadron with the modern um so that's right that they should be included um but obviously, 
they're very busy and i think we were dead luck you know we were dead lucky to get that typhoon to fly over you know because because um they've obviously got to be on guard for the rush keys coming down and whatever else they're ordered to do um but we have got some good footage captured and uh yeah. And, and all of these will be linked to the web page, so that the web page will link to all of the old footage and the present mm. footage. Yeah. That's, um, we've acted like a kind of repository of the information so far, including the interviews and radio interviews mm. of that time and photographs mm. and yeah. first-hand accounts are all on the web pages, which we're very much hoping Brooklands might like to take over. Do you have anything planned specifically for the actual anniversary day, which uh, I believe is New Year's Eve? Yes, we do. Um, we've, 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 we've had a service prepared at the, at the cathedral, done in advance because of COVID, but that will be released on New Year's Eve, as I understand it, at exactly that time, at three o'clock at the time of the ditching. And Vic, do you want to say a bit, a bit about Ian Benzie and the, and the school children? Yes, Ian, Ian Benzie um, was headmaster of a, a school on the Black Isle, which is um, just north of Inverness. He, when the uh, recovery became known, um, his school children took it on as a project. And apart from b being there physically when it, when it happened, uh, they did a, a play which, uh, a, radio play which actually went out on the local radio station at the time um, and there are copies of that play as well and one of the young girls an 11 year old actually wrote a poem about the whole it's literally the history of um arthur robert from its inception um, by barnes wallace down to its final home at brooklands and that was in fact to the 11 year old that actually wrote it is now 45 year old <laughs> um, but she couldn't come to the uh, uh, Inverness actually for the service to re to reread her own poem. So we had two young girls from the local cathedral school, um, which is obviously attached to the cathedral where we were, uh, and they recited the poem. Okay, and again, looking to the future, we're talking about things linking together. Uh, is there anything on the horizon in the future? Yes, um, on, uh, once, the, um, once it, the, the epidemic and that is over, hopefully there will be an exhibition in the uh, museum at Inverness, um, probably for a, approximately a three month period. And then near Lossiemouth, actually at uh, Kinloss, there is an aviation museum that specializes in the Murray Perth area. Uh, and opera, uh, operations on the, in the Murray Perth area. And it, we hope that uh, once the muse, uh, museum, I've not finished with it, probably not correct terminology, once that they've finished their stint with it, it's going to um, Moravia, uh, which also got a website uh, on, that's referred to on our website as a permanent, permanent exhibit to, to live on there. That would be great uh, up in the area. And, um, Mm. Um, is there any likelihood of any TV programs or, or books coming out of it? Well, there is um, a diary day already in the Brooklands diary for us to meet at Brooklands on the 24th of September 2021. Um, 
and that will be the um, sort of final day of what we hope will be a five-day UK and international tour starting up in the Highlands on the 20th of September. Um, cruising Loch Ness on the 21st of September, which will be the anniversary of the lifting. Next year, that'll be the 36th anniversary of the lifting. Um, and then we're gonna, we're gonna come, we're gonna land up in Brooklands for a nice little uh, lunch on that, the Friday at the end of that week. And so, so I'm hoping to persuade some of the Americans to come over, plus our contacts in Wilhelmshaven. So we've got a German element and anybody who is really linked to Arthur Robert in terms of the families that we've found in the previous projects. Um, so again, back to the future projects, I understand there's going to be a little bit of money involved. Um, how are we actually funding that? Well, we have a challenge in as much as we, we want to make a very good quality documentary, film documentary about this history. And we also want to erect a commemorative plaque. And we think we're going to need a budget in the region of 15 to 20,000 pounds to do, you know, do something really nice. Unfortunately, most of that money will be um, needed for the, the film and films are not eligible for lottery funding. And therefore, we have got really to, to launch a very effective crowdfund campaign. But bearing in mind of the area we're covering, you know, we're covering North America, UK, a bit of mainland Europe. Um, at the moment, the pro promotion for our seeking our 20,000 is on the basis, look, we only need 4,000 five pound notes to do this. Please help us. And so we are, you know, we're trying to tease a few people into backing us. And I think, have we almost got 10% of what we need now, Rachel? Uh, yes, I think we have. Yes, it's yeah. uh, the, the crowdfund page is, is the Just mm. Giving page. Yeah. It's on the website if you want to go to it. You're welcome. So, um, so a person clicking onto that QR code, and I've actually recently just put the QR code reader on, on my smartphone, and, and I'm having a, a job, you know, being sort of born in the first half of last century, I'm having a job with all this technology, hmm. but this QR code business is just fantastic because right. you click on our donate QR code, you see the picture of Rachel, and you can either donate immediately by impulse or read what Rachel's saying about what, why we need the money. So uh, I hope you see Arthur Robert. Yeah, yeah great. So if people go to lochnesswellington2020.org, look for the crowdfunding uh, section, QR code on there, and the rest should be quite easy. So uh, good luck with your fundraising. If I may add another bit about the current situation on Loch Ness regarding Arthur Robert, Jacobite Cruises, who run the, the tour boats on, on the lock, um, mainly for overseas tourists, uh, on, their, in their, on, their, on their boats, which are quite large, in the, the sort of cafeteria area, 
on the tables is a map of Loch Ness. And marked on that map um, is the point where, uh, where the aircraft was, was recovered and where it crashed. Also, uh, they mention it in the, they mention it in their in their commentary when, when they're doing their cruise the lock. So it lives on with every cruise two or three times a day on Loch Ness. Now that that's great to hear, um, and it's great to hear that people like yourselves are trying to keep the memory alive as well. Um, of course, that's what we're doing at at Brooklands with it being the centerpiece of our aircraft factory exhibition. Um, and it's available to be seen every day that the museum's open, of course. So I'd like to thank uh, Rachel, Vic, and Jack for a very interesting story about Arthur Robert. Thank you. Thank you.